0: Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Eclectic Readers podcast. Um, We are recording live from Book Riot Live, um, and we are joined today by the fantastic Charlie Jane Anders. Um, I'm Tara. I'm Meredith. And thank you so much, Charlie, for coming.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun. Uh,
0: So... We have done our due diligence, of course, as as we should. Um, so we know quite a bit about you, but we definitely want our uh, listeners to know a little bit about you from your own mouth. So if you wouldn't mind, tell them a little about yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, I wrote a book called All the Birds in the Sky, which is about a mad scientist and a witch and their sort of relationship as kids and then later as adults. And um, you know, I was an editor with a website called io9.com about uh, science fiction and stuff for about. Eight and a half years, and I've published a bunch of short stories, uh, including Six Months, Three Days, uh, which won a Hugo and got some other stuff, so that was fun. And, you know, just kind of uh, writing a bunch of crazy stuff.
0: So, how is your con going?
1: So far, it's awesome. I love this convention. I haven't been to this one before, but it's so cool. And I just love, like, the panels are all really interesting. I like that it's just, like, two big panels at any given time. And, like, there's just really interesting discussions. Really, really great authors. I'm having a blast.
0: So you hold a very special place in geek and nerd culture. Um, having created and uh, been the editor-in-chief of io9.com, if you, as you mentioned, um, I personally love Io9. I've been reading it for years. Um, What was it like starting the site, and what were the major challenges? Did you ever think it'd get as big as it did?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, actually, I should correct you. I did not create Io9. Uh, That was Annalee Newitz. She was the editor in chief for the first like seven something, seven and a half years. And it was really her baby, and she brought me in to work on it with her. Uh, we had previously we were partners, and we had also previously worked on some other projects together and Yeah, we never thought it would get as big as it did. It was kind of crazy, like you know we didn 't know like at the time, Gawker media had started some other sites, there were a bunch of sites that they started jezebel dot com obviously did well, but there were other ones which you know nobody even remembers now, like Gridskipper.com dot com and like you know ones that just kind of or idolater.com, I guess it's still around, but it hasn't been a Gawker site for a long time. And um, there were a ton of them. And, you know, a lot of them, they would start a site and it would just kind of, it wouldn't work out for whatever reason, or they would sell it or they would close it. And, you know, so we didn't know what to expect. And uh, one of the biggest challenges was just coming up with a name for the site because... Um, You know, originally they wanted to call it futurista.com, but we couldn't get that URL. Um, And we tried a bunch of other URLs, and, like, we couldn't get the URLs we wanted that sounded cool and futuristic. And, like, we had a bunch of different names. And, like, finally io9 just kind of, like, that was a domain name we could get, and we thought it sounded cool and futuristic. And uh, Annalie made up a whole story about it.
0: Well, isn't it from a book, or doesn't it have... No, it doesn't have any sort of. I don't know. I I I thought it was from something specific. No, nope. excellent. Um, that's I just made that up in my own head. <laughs> that happens. Um, so the IO nine tagline is uh, one of my favorites. You know, we come from the future. Um, who came up that, and what does that mean to you? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think originally our tagline was strung out on science fiction. But, uh, Annalie wanted to change it to We Come From The Future and you'd have to ask her, but I think it was because there was all this science on the site as well as science fiction and it was always kind of about the meeting of those two things and how, you know, learning about science could help you appreciate science fiction and vice versa. Reading all about science fiction would give you a different perspective on all the science and kind of the idea that, you know, the world is getting more futuristic in some ways, you know, just in the time that we were doing the site, we started discovering way more exoplanets and like we started sequencing people's DNA at a much faster rate. And it was just things like that were happening really quickly. And, you know, drone strikes became a big thing in the last, like, you know, nine or ten years. And just stuff that would have seemed really science fictional is now just, oh, of course, yeah, there's drone strikes, there's DNA testing, there's all this other stuff. And so, you know, I think it was the idea that uh, that combination of science and science fiction was sort of like talking the future, kind of talking to us or something. And it was just, it was a fun way of kind of getting back to, I mean, I guess the fact that we originally were supposed to call it futurista, you know, it was like a site about futurism. And so that was kind of the idea.
0: Excellent. Well, let's jump to some discussion about your newest novel, which we loved um, all the birds in the sky. Uh, The quote at the beginning of the book was just perfect. Um, I, Oh, I love it, and I kept thinking back to it as I was reading the book. Um, I think a lot of authors do this. Um, so, since the quote really does have so much to do, I think with the story or really reflects the story very well. What sort of came first the the, the story? Did you have the story in mind, or did you hear the quote and then kind of connect the story?
1: Um, I think that that quote. Um, actually came from, uh, a commenter on io9 who posted it in response to something. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to use that. (laughs) And, uh, and then I got the book and read more of it and it's, it's a great book. Um, and, uh, but you know, that idea that nature is on the side of the machines and the idea that, you know, we think of like nature and technology as being, uh, against each other, but actually nature is sort of pro-technology. Um, because, the laws of physics are kind of the laws of nature and that kind of thing. And I don't know, it was something that I got fascinated by. I think I came across that quote, you know, on io9, like I said, probably when I was like a year or so into writing the book. And it definitely, you know, it kind of stuck with me. And uh, it did, you know, you're the first person to mention it. Um, I would love for people to think about that quote while they're reading the book, because I feel like that does kind of come back in some ways like the idea that things that seem to be opposites aren't really opposites or things that i don't know that's definitely something i was kind of noodling on in the book hopefully not in a lecturing the reader kind of way but in a just kind of throwing out ideas or questions to that i would love for people to think about kind of way
0: well that's especially true in the end um so i should yeah i should say this um we're going to get into this book Uh, so people who are listening if you have not read it you might possibly want to turn this off because we are going to get into the book and we're going to get some pretty big spoilers out there that being said absolutely read it it is we just adored this book Um, so Lawrence uh, builds a two second time machine Um, why two seconds and what would you use that device for in your own life
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I can't remember where the two second time machine came from. It was just a thing where, you know, I wanted to start the book with like each of the two main characters getting kind of like a a vignette or like an almost an origin story. And, you know, I just sort of – he originally, I think, in that chapter, Lawrence just builds a bunch of weird gadgets. And I don't know. I really liked the two-second time machine because it was kind of useless but still really cool. And, like, then it turns out to be a thing that, like, kind of shows other people that he's a cool nerd. And, like, when he finds his people, they're like, oh, yeah. Mm." And, uh, you, yeah, you have one of those too, huh? And, like, you know, I thought that was cool. And, like, I don't know. I mean, it just – um, I, if he had something that was actually useful, then it would just, you know, solve his problems and then that would be boring. But something that he couldn't really use. If, in terms of if I had a two-second time machine, I really don't know what I would use it for. Um, you know, I've definitely been in some meetings where even shaving off a couple seconds would have been good. Uh, but I don't know. Um, you know, I guess if you, you think to use it quickly enough, if you're in the middle of, like, an actual disaster where things are blowing up, that would be really useful, maybe. But I don't know.
0: I used to live in D.C. And um, walking down those cobblestone uh, streets in heels, those that two-second time machine would come into use on a daily basis <laughs> for me. Um, so I really enjoyed the juxtaposition between the seriousness of or the perceived seriousness, I'm going to say, of the nameless order of assassins. Oh, and um, the more whimsical parts you threw in, um, you know, the ice cream, um, ice when uh, Rose thinks to himself, ice cream is for assassins who finish their targets, but then, you know, it basically says, uh, sorry, David, fuck it. Um, I'm just going to eat ice cream anyway. Um, why did you decide to add these funny little tidbits for what normally would have been a pretty serious section.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. First of all, I mean, originally, All the Birds in the Sky was going to be kind of more of a comedy. And I kind of went back and forth about the tone, but I settled on something that I would call kind of whimsical, I guess, but never getting, like, too out of control and, like, always coming back to the characters and hopefully being emotionally grounded with the characters. But, you know, the, the character of Theodolphus Rose, who's this assassin was kind of the most whimsical or silliest character in the book and I just I I felt like I could get away with that especially given how dark some of the stuff when they're in junior high actually is I felt like okay I feel like that humor is actually going to be it's going to work there and you know I was like people are going to be really annoyed with like how third wall breaking and how kind of silly some of that stuff is and I wasn't I wasn't sure if people were going to like give me a hard time about it but People have been saying that they like those parts, so I'm, like, really glad. It's, it's actually a relief when I, when I hear people say that they liked the Theodolphus Rose stuff. And I don't know. I mean, originally there was way more of that. Like, I was writing it long and I just wrote pages and pages and pages of Theodolphus Rose kind of, like, spying on them and going around and, like, you know— pretending to be a, high, a junior high school guidance counselor and doing all this stuff and, like, dealing with his landlady. And there was just, like, pages of that. And it was really fun to write. Like, he's a really fun character to write. And the other thing was, you know, I kind of, like... I got in my head that I didn't want this to be a book with any, like, villains or antagonists. And Theodolphus is, like, the one character in the book who kind of could be considered a villain or an antagonist to the main characters. Like, most of their problems come from them or from their friends, like, rather than from, you know, some evil person who's doing bad stuff to them. And so, you know, and I kept being like, well, I could cut him and then... It would be more pure, and it would just be them dealing with being in junior high and like but i i I kept feeling like that he provided something that really moved things along and kind of tightened the screws on them in a way that I really liked, and you know, but I felt like having it be the reader knows that he 's kind of you know this pathetic figure, but he 's really scary to them was something that I felt like you know then you kind of get away with having this sort of villain character if the reader is not thinking of them as in that, simply those terms, I guess.
0: So I can't help but think there's more to the Adolphus Rose besides a lovable, but silly name and a great love for ice cream. Um, so he is the only nameless assassin we meet or we think we meet, I guess is really true. Um, are they real or is it something that he kind of came up with himself or is he sort of insane?
1: Wow, um, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, you're, the, you're the, like the second person to ask me about where are the other nameless assassins. I'm like, I oh. <laughs> um, Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I never thought that he might be just making them up. I always assumed that they're real and that, you know, because he's, he does seem at times to be really good at, you know, his craft. Although, you know, one part of how I get away with him like, you know, there's that thing where he can't actually kill them while they're children, and then he has to resort to manipulation, and he's just not quite as good at manipulation as he is at other stuff. But I think they're real. I mean, somebody poisons his ice cream in that first sequence, and, like, I think that they're out there, and, like, you know, he kind of falls from grace, and when we meet him later in the book, he's kind of been dropped. Like, they've kind of just been like, you're cut off. We don't... You're 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 done. Uh, but, um... Yeah, I think that they're real, but, you know, I would love to, I, you know, now that one other person was like, so where, you know, why don't we learn more about them and what the other nameless assassins are doing? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're all like, it's like in Game of Thrones, they're all in like a building with changing faces and, you know, washing people and stuff. I don't know. So
0: Arya Stark is secretly in this book. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... A couple more questions about the Adolphus, only because I just found him so interesting. Uh, why did the witches let him out in the end uh, when he's in the cell?
1: Wait, wait.
0: Didn't they? No? No, they never let him out. Not like out of, let let out, out of the out cell. Of, yeah. Out of the figure, that's what I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Actually
1: that was that was a hole that i kind of like never quite like basically so he gets turned into like he's been a you kind of get the sense he's been a pain in all the witches side since he failed to kill patricia in junior high school and they turn him into a little figurine and then you know what i figured was at some point patricia's carrying around this little figurine of her the the guidance counselor who tortured her in junior high school and she finally is like i can't carry this around anymore it's freaking me out and so she gives it to you know either uh, Dorotea or somebody or Kawashima one of the other witches and says gotta take this off my hands and then either he just changes his back eventually or they just decide to stick him in a dungeon because they're like you know they they need to keep track of him or something so I just it wasn't like I didn't have a tidy story of it but I kind of decided that she eventually like I think I have her say at one point this is gonna freak me out if I keep carrying him around I'm gonna have to beg someone to take him off my hands and so she does and eventually they're just like okay we'll just we can stick him in our dungeon I don't know
0: um and his vision of Patricia and Lawrence that he had is that the incident in Colorado is that the end with the mecha bot slash which or was it something else in the future that possibly is a sequel (laughs)
1: Uh, It's definitely, I mean, I'm not planning a sequel, but I mean, you know, I think it's it's definitely all of that. It's like, you know, and I think that the war between magic and science, you know, maybe is averted. And like, you know, part of what I kind of thought about while I was writing it, kind of a spoiler alert, is that, you know, in some ways, Theodolphus actually succeeds. He wants to prevent this war between magic and science, and he actually does it in the most horrible way possible and that his intervention actually makes Patricia and Lawrence, um, able to do what they do later in the book. And so he actually, in some ways is, is, is a positive force, even, even though he's a horrible human being.
0: So in the book, you present different ideas of the roles of nature and humankind. You have Lawrence concerned with the end of the human race and Patricia concerned with the end of the natural world. Um, what side do you find yourself on? And, um, what were you trying to convey with these differing options
1: I mean I think it's a complicated question like i mean part of what i i mean in terms of our relationship to nature, I feel like nature is a social construct it's something that you know it's it's something that kind of we we invented the idea of nature to describe what's not us or what we didn't make and like you know um we're part of nature anything we anything we create is really part of nature like if a if a beaver builds a dam, we don't say, well, that's not natural, that's something else. And I just think, so I think that, you know, that's, that I was trying to kind of very gently kind of dig away at that dichotomy between technology and nature or between people and nature. Um, but also, I mean, I think, you know, there are huge questions that don't have an easy answer that are we're dealing with in the real world of like, you know, can we... You know, can we find another planet to live on if we screw this one up? And I think most of us would say, no, not anytime soon. Like. Even if we could get people to Mars, we're not going to be able to get enough people to Mars quickly enough. It's going to be, you know, like I showed this, all the birds in the sky to a bunch of science geeks. And one of them said, you know, these people who are trying to find another planet to live on, even if they find a planet that's Earth-like, quote unquote, which Mars is not Earth-like. But if they found one with an oxygen atmosphere, reasonably like liquid water, similar temperatures, they're like, it's going to be a fixer-upper. It's going to be a fixer up but it's going to take some... You're going to have to, you know... You're going to have to work on that planet for a long time to get it to be where we can live there. Um, And, you know, I mean, I am a believer in the idea that even if we weren't destroying our environment, eventually maybe an asteroid will just come and smash us or some other thing like that will come and hit us. And, you know, I'm in favor of us eventually not just living on this one planet for that reason. Uh, But I also think that uh, for... You know, probably for the next few hundred years, we have to assume that this is the only planet we can live on, and that we have to safeguard it. And I, I think that we have to work towards both things. Like, you can't choose; you have to work to make keep this planet habitable for humans, and also look for other planets. And you know, we're we're delicate little flowers, humans. We we can only live in a very narrow range of 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 uh, circumstances. Like, it gets too hot; it gets too cold. You know, we, if, if certain food items are, can no longer be produced, then we're, we're done. So true. Um, so
0: I have one more question. That I'm going to pass over the mic to Mayor uh, to ask some questions about uh, the magic system. Um, so I love the line, um, I wonder how many other things in our world are just shadows of things in other places. Uh, obviously, they, they're talking about gravity, I think, specifically in that line, or or talking about even more than, or what could be more than that. Um, What does, you know, when you think about that line, what are some of the things that come to mind?
1: That's a good question. You're the the first person to ask me about that. I mean, I guess, you know, part of it is, um, yeah, the, the thing of like, there are other universes where things that are kind of minor here or bigger there or you know gravity is stronger in other universes and stuff but it's also just i don't know the the idea of the limits of our perceptions and like um you know the the thing right after that they mentioned plato and like the idea that we're just seeing the shadows on the cave wall i do think that you know part of the problem that we have is that we we don't really perceive the world as it is or we don't even perceive half of what's around us, we just kind of, everything is filtered through our expectations and our, like, our preconceptions and everything, and, you know, that's, like, part of what I like about having some of those scenes where Patricia and Lawrence are talking to each other is that they can have these conversations where they actually, I don't know, like, I like the fact that they think about stuff like that and they're not just, you know, stuck in their very, like, I feel like it would have been, you know, I liked scenes where they're geeking out in general and it also particularly, you know, not falling into the trap of, like, well, he's science and she's magic, so they're just going to, like, represent very, you know, tight viewpoints of, like... And I liked kind of sneaking around that by just having them think about that. But I I wonder about that stuff all the time, like, you know, whether, like, for example, if you had a non-human intelligence, whether it would be, like, you know this whole idea that we see wavelengths of light and like, okay, well, we can see light in this one wavelength and we can see these things that we call colors. And it's like, well, I see this radiation, but I don't really perceive it as light and I perceive it as this whole other thing. And like, I don't even understand what this light thing you're talking about is. It's some other thing, you know. I, I, that was kind of, and like, you know, I'm part of what's going on in the book that I tried to be not sledgehammery about is that at the start of the book, Patricia has asked a question about color and so I keep trying to kind of sneak back to the idea of like um, seeing and different ways of seeing and um, whether you, you know, whether we can ever perceive things as, as they are in any way. And like, so I'm just always kind of trying to tip, tip away at that without ever having the reader being like, oh, for God's sake, shut up about that. <laughs> you know, so that's probably one of the times where I'm trying to do that very sneakily. I don't know.
2: So, in this story, Patricia is a witch, and we are shown two schools of magic: healer magic and trickster magic, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, why did you decide on these two types of magic?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a complicated process that basically like came from me kind of freaking out and like you know staring at a blank page for. A few days and being like, what the hell is going to be the magic in this? Because I didn't didn't want it to be like, I didn't want it to be like any magic that I'd seen in a fantasy novel before, which there's a billion fantasy novels, so you could never really know. But I was like, okay, um, you know, it's not going to be just they say pig Latin and and point a wand at something and then things happen. And like, so I was like trying to come up with a different way of doing it. And I think part of it was that I wanted to kind of, as much as possible, be able to explain the things that Patricia did in the first half of the book and have them kind of fit into a system without being too, like, heavy-handed about it. And also, um, I sort of thought about, like, real-life schools of magic on this planet and, like, um, how to how to very, very, very loosely have them be able to be incorporated without actually saying, well, this these people, you know, Celtic people are doing this, and blah, blah, blah. I didn't want to actually... The moment you start like trying to like incorporate a lot of real life cultural stuff from a bunch of different cultures, you're you're in a kind of a minefield, and if you get any of it wrong, you're you're it's gonna be problems. And it wasn't the book I wanted to write, and I didn't want to really do that, but I wanted people who were like really obsessed with one type of magic to be like, well, that could be a trickster or that could be a healer magic, you know, and like but make it super loose. And like the other thing was, there's there's lots of hints in the book that actually that system of magic is a very kind of inexact and partial um, portrayal of something that's much bigger and messier, and people have just figured out these two ways to do it and um, and kind of put labels on them and come up with rules. And, like, you know, people, like, I mean, I guess maybe that's in some way, like, the difference between science and magic. That, you know, science has rules that we can figure out, but often magic, you know, and things that are either, that are, of the world that are beyond, that are too big or too strange for us to understand in real life. We kind of decide that that's the These are the rules and we assign rules to them. And I felt like that was some of that, what was going on was that they were just kind of, they kind of lay put labels on stuff and it works because they, they've figured out enough of it, but it's not the whole picture.
0: I mean, I love that quote where in the book it says, and I'm going to totally, uh, yeah, this isn't going to be exact. Um, it, that They said the trickster's greatest trick is to, is to tell the world they couldn't heal. Uh, that, yeah, I really, really love that.
2: Right, and we see that Patricia is, she's good at being a trickster, but she really does have a heart for healing, too. Uh, and so it was interesting to see those two sides of the magic that she's kind of battling with. And, and I, I think in the end, she, she is able to come to terms with how they work together which was nice. Um, And in this world, magic is a little bit different, like you were saying. Uh, They were saying that they viewed it as a practice and an art and not a spiritual belief system, as we see sometimes with magic. Um, They said, you know, believing you had a direct line to something great and ancient was the beginning of aggrandizement, which they were totally against, or, you know, the the teachers were, at least. Um, So was, was that one of the reasons that we were led into this whole kind of schism of things turning around that they weren't really getting back to the roots with nature or anything like that
1: Which which schism between healers and tricksters or, or the tree and the witches which
2: The That's a good question too. Cuz there are there's like there's different things cuz you have the the science and the magic but then the witches also she, she seems to be more in touch with nature than some of the other witches. Is that because of them not wanting to seem like they're aggrandizing things?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, those are all really good questions. And, like, um, I think that, I mean, part of what I had in my head was that Patricia does kind of have this more unique experience where she kind of stumbles into this communication early in her life where she talks to something that's, you know, kind of primal or whatever, and that's how she gets into magic. And... You know she kind of is doing magic on her own for a long time before they find her, and I have one or two times in there people being like, "This is why we don 't like to f- why we don 't like to find magic students who have you know been doing it on their own. they get it all wrong, and then we have to un- we have to un- make them unlearn everything they already learned, which is what they do with Patricia after they find her and take her to the school like I think kind of you know, originally I was going to have more of that, but I, I think kind of usually if you're magically gifted, they find you younger and they train you up from the, the the ground up and you don't, none of this thing of talking to magical artifacts out in the world or whatever. And like that just doesn't happen. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I I have a video of this somewhere online where I talk about this. My the, the canon I had in my head or whatever, the backstory I had in my head was that thousands of years ago, um, the tree or something like the tree talked to someone and asked it, that person a question, like what they asked Patricia. And that person went off to find the answer and searched and searched. And, and the tree was like, I'll give you some power so you can work on this. Um, and the person searched and searched and couldn't find the answer. And then when the time, when they were done or they were at the end of their life, they managed to pass the, power and the, the responsibility to answer this question on to someone else and that person surged and over time the question got more garbled the power you know got more dissipated and shared among more people or something and you know eventually people just kind of had a bunch of like vague ritualistic stuff but they didn't really know that there was a question they were supposed to be working on or that was kind of the idea of where magic came from in the back of my mind i never put that in the book so it's you don't have to Take that or you can completely ignore that. But that was kind of my idea was was of where it came from.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah. I like that. Now another thing we see in this book is artificial intelligence. And the idea that AI in this world could feel loneliness was really intriguing. Uh, I know I was worried that Peregrine was going to, like, take over the world or, like, some, like, crazy Terminator-style thing. It was kind of in the back of my head the whole time, like, oh, no, (laughs) what's going to happen with this? So it was a breath of fresh air to see him genuinely interested in human relationships and love and almost like a child who wanted to see his parents together. Um, Why did you decide to take the AI story that direction?
1: I think I just kind of stumbled into it a little bit. But, I mean, you know, I'm a little bit of an AI skeptic in real life. I feel like, you know, I forget who said this, but, you know, the dawn of artificial intelligence is always 20 years away. Like, it's always 20 years from now we're going to have real artificial, like, strong AI Um, we're going to have artificial superintelligence 20 years from now, and it's always going to be 20 years away. I don't know. I feel like part of the thing with Peregrine is that he was kind of a fusion of magic and technology. We kind of figure out eventually. And so he's not, there's not any other AIs out there because the circumstances that created him were kind of unique. And um, I just, I liked the idea. Part of it was just, again, trying to think about technology and, our relationship with technology and um, you know, having this book about magic and technology, I wanted to deal with technology in a thoughtful way and not just have like ray guns and spaceships and stuff. And a big part of the story of like our relationship with technology in the early 21st century is that it has brought people together for good and for ill and that it's transformed our social and romantic and, you know, personal lives to a huge extent. And I wanted to kind of bring that in without it just being, you know, a direct metaphor for, like, Google or, or OkCupid or whatever. I wanted to kind of take that to the next level and also just explore, you know, what kind of mind would be behind that. And Peregrine is basically benevolent. Uh, Peregrine doesn't want to be a god or a ruler. Peregrine feels some sense of satisfaction in bringing people together. And I actually I really liked playing with that.
2: Yeah, I liked Peregrine. He was so sweet. Now, would you ever use a caddy?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I had one, I would be using it constantly. God, I think about <laughs> it all the time. I actually, you know, it's funny when when the book was coming. When I finished the book, like I I sold it in like. Sp- march april 2014 and i was like then they were like we're gonna put it out in january 2016 and i was already worried at that point that somebody was gonna have put out the caddy like that the caddy would exist by the time the book came out and like i was like oh, by january 2016 we're gonna have caddies for sure and it's gonna basically already be a thing and people will be like well why did you put this thing that we already have in your science fiction and i was like oh no so i was really you know disappointed but also relieved that we don't just have those already
2: yeah exactly now, all the restaurants and bars that we see later on in the book in San Francisco just seemed so unique and felt real. Uh, did you base those off of any real life places, or are they places you wish existed?
1: They're almost all real life places, actually. Like a lot of it is real life places. I, I just, I'm kind of lazy, and I just, you know, I wanted to have it feel like the real place. Not every one of them. There are a few places that are that are I kind of made up, or I kind of took a real place and flipped it in my head and added a bunch of stuff. But for the most part, it's the, it's the real stuff. And I wanted to just have that be as as true to life as I could because there's so much other crazy fantastical stuff. And I feel like a sense of place really helps you to bond to the characters because they're in a real place, so they feel like real people. And, you know, I think that that's something that, that's like an, kind of an easy fix in a way for like just adding a little bit more reality and, and emotional grounding when there's a lot of other craziness going on.
2: All right. We're almost to the end of this amazing interview. It's been really interesting. Uh, one thing that I'm so happy about is you, uh, put out a short story about Berkeley, the cat and what <laughs> happened to him. So good. Oh <laughs> yeah. We really loved it. And it just made me feel so much better to know what, what happened to this poor cat <laughs> um so was that something that you were planning to do or was it something that as readers were talking to you about what happened to the cat you just felt like you needed to it,
1: it was a hundred percent something that uh, as readers asked me i was like oh crap like because like it was you know i so i had it in the book and one of the editors at Tor was like okay what happens to the cat so i added a line when she's at magical school where it's like she's feeling bad about the cat, but that didn't really solve it. And so I was, you know, out on the book tour and people were starting to ask, like, dude, where's the Cat, like, because she has this cat, they have this really intense relationship, and then she kind of leaves the cat behind, and you can understand why she does, but it's also still like she promised that she would look after that cat, and now she just kind of bailed. And so I was like, okay, crap, I gotta fix this. And so, you know, I was like, I went back and forth about like, what kind of story can I tell that doesn't just feel like it's just, and then the cat was fine, the end. And so I was like thinking about magic and like, It was one more chance to kind of like get into how magic works in this world and like particularly trickster magic because it's all trickster magic in that story and have it be like, well, so she wants to save the cat. What's the cost of saving the cat? Like she can't just like get on a plane and go home and grab the cat. She has to she's stuck at this magical school. If she wants to save this cat, she's going to have to do something. And I did for like five seconds toy with having like most of the story take place after the book and having her be like, I've been turned into a cat and, like, Lawrence is out there somewhere and he's lost... Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, he's lost his voice and I have to get back to him. But then I was like, ah, then I... that Just so many cans of worms I'd be opening up. So I was like, okay, it takes place, like, you know, towards the end of her time at the school. She's finally paying the price for saving her cat. And, like, I don't know. So you know she's going to be fine, but it's still hopefully got some jeopardy. And, like, it was just, you know... When I, it didn't, like I I said, I was like thinking of it as like, what price does she pay for saving the cat? And then it didn't really click fully until I started turning it into more of a story of this person who gets like seven years of good luck from taking in this cat and like what happens to him. And then I was like, okay, because if it's a story where she's the main character, it's just more of that. And so I was like, yeah, I can just approach it from a little bit of a different angle and hopefully just skate over some of the, you know, not repeat myself too much.
2: Yeah, it was really great. We we loved those additional characters that you threw in. And on a personal they were they were a sweet couple. And on a personal note, right now I live in DC, but I have family in Raleigh, so I know that drive that you talk about with uh it was I was like, "Yes, I know that drive." <laughs> um so, we are nearing the end of our interview, and one thing that we like to do because we are the Eclectic Readers Book Club, we like to ask authors what their eclectic pick would be? Maybe something a little different, maybe people haven't read a lot you think should get more attention, or anything just kind of off the wall. What would you pick for our readers to read?
1: Um, God, so many books that I could suggest. Uh, one book that came out a while ago that's by a friend of mine is Black Hole by Bucky Sinister. It's a little bit weird, and if you're squicked by like obscenity and bodily fluids and stuff you might not want to read it but it's like a very punk rock Philip K. Dick kind of book about this guy who's a drug addict and he discovers this drug that never runs out and it also causes you to become unstuck in time and it's about gentrification and bodily fluids a lot of bodily fluids just be warned (laughs) and uh, it's super it's kind of gross but and super weird but really funny and really messed up and it deserves like all the attention It's it's a really fun book
2: Very cool. We're going to have to check that out. Well, thank you so much, Charlie Jane, for coming. It's been awesome. And we'll shelve this until next time.